before we jump in, I'd like to say another quick prayer if we can. Um, Lord, we just, we acknowledge that as we stand before you, that you are our king. You are our ruler. You reign. You are in charge. But God, I pray today that as we, as we look at this text from Luke, that we would see that you are quite a different kind of king than we might expect. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the truth of your gospel, that you are a king who willingly lays his life down for those that he loves. I pray this morning, Lord, on, on this Christ the King Sunday, that we would have a bigger vision of what it means that you are king over our lives and king over this entire universe. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So um, today is Christ the King Sunday. Um, what's really unique about Christ the King Sunday is that it's, it's a feast day that's declaring the kingship of Jesus. Um, seems pretty simple enough, but what I love about Christ the King Sunday is that we're starting as, as if it were an on-ramp into the season of Advent. If you've ever been to the movies and you've seen at the beginning of the movie where they kind of show you the end and then they rewind and they start back at the beginning, so you have this preview of the end in mind before the movie actually begins, that's what's happening on Christ the King Sunday. We're being given this vision of Jesus's kingdom at the end of time, ruling and reigning over all things, and then we enter into the tension and the anticipation of Advent. And so when we think about how Christ the King Sunday is uniquely placed here at the beginning of Advent, I want you to, to allow yourself to enter into that tension with me today. I will just tell you, as I was reading this Luke passage, it would be really convenient if it wasn't Jesus dying on the cross. Because when we're talking about Christ the King Sunday, we read the Colossians passage and we read these other passages about Jesus being preeminent, the firstborn of all creation, this powerful, strong king. And then we get to the Luke passage and we see Jesus hanging on the cross. What's peculiar about this passage is just how jarring it is. We expect a triumphant, powerful, strong king, but instead, we're being given Jesus hanging on a cross, mocked by his enemies. This passage is a paradox. And if you know what a paradox is, there, there are a few that, that I kind of looked up, like a few phrases that are paradoxical just to give you an idea. One of them would be, all I know is that I know nothing. I've said that a lot of times. Uh, less is more. Someday you'll be old enough to be young again. The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. That's one of my favorites. So paradoxes are, they're powerful literary tools because what a paradox does on the surface, it seems unbelievable. It seems impossible. Like these two things can't be reconciled. But as we dig a little bit deeper, what a paradox actually does is it opens our minds and our hearts to a reality that we would not have been able to understand without those two seemingly irreconcilable things happening at the same time. When we think about kingship, at least when I think about kingship, I think about movies that I've seen where I think of power and strength <clears throat> and the ability to overcome your enemies with, with strategy and wealth and influence and honor. We think of someone who moves and breathes without having to answer to anybody. 
So why is this passage a paradox? Because King Jesus wears a crown of thorns and his throne is actually a Roman execution device called a cross. And so we are being given this image of a very different kind of king today. Now we know how the story ends, right? We know how Easter Sunday is Jesus being triumphant, resurrecting, and then eventually ascending. We know how the story ends, but we're not meant to fast forward to that yet. We're meant to sit in this tension, in this paradox. I want you to put yourself in the minds of the disciples. They have been told that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the king. They've been following this guy for three years. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him do incredible things. But now, all of a sudden, in this moment, what they see is they see their king dying, being mocked. You see, they don't, they don't have a category for this kind of king. They're thinking of the Messiah that's going to come and destroy the Romans. They don't understand the kind of power that Jesus has. So the paradox that we are entering into today on Christ the King Sunday, like I said, it's an on-ramp into Advent. Our king comes in the form of a submissive servant, a humble ruler who lays down his life. He comes in the form of an infant born in a barn in the middle of nowhere in a backwater town, and he willingly embraces the upside-down entry into the kingdom. Um, there is, I don't know if we have this image to put on the screen, uh, but there is, there's this image in Christian iconography called the Agnus Dei. And what it stands for is the, the Lamb of God. What I love about this image is if you look at it closely, you see that the Lamb <clears throat> has a triumphant cross behind him with the white banner symbolizing victory and purity. You also see that the Lamb is wearing a crown. But you notice that that crown has got red in it. And there's lots of different interpretations of this piece of art, but all artists will say that what's meant to happen in this piece of art is to embrace the paradox that we worship a lamb who is weak, that was meant to be for sacrifice, but that lamb is also a king. And so in this piece of art and in, in this paradox of this passage today, I want you to allow yourself to enter into the tension that we are feeling that Jesus is a triumphant king who was willing to go to the cross before he received the true crown and the true throne. So as we jump in, I've got two basic points today. I like to keep it simple. Um, the first point is this. Jesus is a submissive king. Jesus is a submissive king. So let's look at Luke 23. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're gonna start reading at verse 35 through 38. So in Luke 23, verse 35, here's what it says. It says, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. I want you to notice there's two things happening there. The rulers, the people in power are making fun of him, but the other people aren't doing anything better. They're just standing by watching. So the, the people are standing by watching. The rulers are scoffing at him. And what they're saying is, he saved others, let him save himself. <clears throat> if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. I want you to feel as you read this 
that even the people watching felt the absurdity of this kind of kingship. They were mocking him because they also expected the kind of king that we expect. They're saying to themselves, if he's truly the king, why wouldn't he just remove himself from the cross? Why wouldn't he just destroy his enemies? Why would he let them crucify him? But I think what these verses are teaching us is that there is something more important, something bigger happening here than what seems to be happening on the surface. You see, Jesus sees a bigger picture of kingship than we see and than the people in the scripture are seeing. Jesus' vision of kingship is submission, submission to his father's will. He doesn't, he doesn't forge a path on his own. He doesn't try to make his own way or get what he wants, but he says, I am submitting to the will of the Father. So often, I know it in my life and probably in your life as well, when we're put in a corner, when we're put in these situations where it's fight or flight and we don't know what to do, our most immediate concern is not, what's the will of the Father right now? Our most immediate concern is, how am I gonna get out of this, right? What am I going to do that's gonna be best for me in this immediate moment. And I want you to see that in this passage, Jesus has a very different mindset. He has a very different goal in mind, and that's submission. He was governed by a mission that extends beyond instant gratification. So <clears throat> for those of you who know, um, I am a high school principal at a private school in Denton called Denton Calvary Academy. And this last week, um, I was preaching during chapel to our high schoolers, and we were talking about how to endure through suffering. What does it mean that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? So I was sharing with them how in our culture, especially high school students um, and younger college students, we, we really revolve around instant gratification. We want immediate pleasure, immediate gratification. Like our phones are constantly in our face. We don't know how to be bored we talked about all that kind of stuff. And as I was talking about that, I did a little bit of research. And what I discovered was something very fascinating. I discovered that the average attention span for a high school student today is actually less than a goldfish. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Literally two seconds less than a goldfish. A goldfish has the attention span of 10 seconds. The average high school student has the attention span of eight seconds. And so as I was talking about that, my first thought was they didn't even hear what I said because they already checked out before I finished it. So we also though suffer from this symptom in our culture. Whether we are older or younger, we all have struggled to, to really know how to endure through suffering and keep a bigger vision ahead of our eyesight in the middle of suffering and in, in struggle. But Jesus, he leads as our king from a different position. He leads from a position of weakness and in humility. And by doing this, he shows us what true strength really is. So the question I have is this, how could he do this? How could Jesus submit so fully, so enduringly to the goal of submission to the Father's will? I mean, one, he's God, so that's a pretty big factor. But number two, Jesus knew who he was he knew his identity. He wasn't grasping for an identity that was rooted in power or influence, but he was satisfied and at peace knowing that being a son was enough, that his father was pleased with him. 
So I ask the question, what about in your life and in my life? How often is our refusal to submit to God actually rooted in this identity struggle, in this not knowing who we are and trying to grasp for any kind of identity that we can get? You see, if we, if we believe that we're orphans, then we will grab food as, as soon as we can find it, right? But if we believe that we are cherished and beloved sons and daughters of the king, then we know that he will provide for us. Kyle Strobel, um, son of Lee Strobel and one of my favorite authors, he has this quote where he says, when we grasp for control of our identity to generate value and significance, we actually shrink our identity, Think about that for a second. When we are so desperate to make a name for ourselves, we actually are reducing the name that God has given us. We're reducing that identity that he's already given us. And we live in this culture that is allergic to the very notion of submission because we believe that if we submit to an authority outside of ourselves, we will lose ourselves. Submission is seen as weak, careless, dangerous. We believe that the authority that is over us, we can't trust because they're going to take something essential away from us. And so what we do is we just, we, we see submission as something that belongs in the category of weakness. We believe that we will lose who we are if we submit. So obviously we are going to bring this tendency into our relationship with God, right? Like if we struggle with this in the real world with authority figures, of course, when we're talking about God being an authority over us, God being a king over us, of course, we are going to follow that as long as he doesn't ask us to give up something that we want. But losing ourselves is exactly where we need to be. Being willing to lose our identity is exactly the place that God wants us to be. Rather than seeing God as a thief, he is inviting us to see him as a giver. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we like the king who doesn't ask us to forfeit our idols, right? We like the king who doesn't get in our way. We like the king who lets us forge our own path, who lets us remain comfortable, who lets us stay in our sin or in our complacency. We like the king who doesn't ask for our crown. But King Jesus he does ask for it. He asks for our crowns, for our idols, for our names, for our very lives. But he exchanges them for a seat at his table. And he exchanges them for a cherished place in his family. As the Colossians reading says, we have been given an inheritance as sons and daughters, a new name, an inheritance that doesn't run out and an assurance that we are never alone. So yes, when we submit to Jesus as our king, we may lose our sense of self-identity. We may lose our perceived sense of dominion. But what we gain is we gain an identity that can never be stolen. And that's being a son or a daughter. What Jesus shows us is that submission is the doorway into his kingdom. There's no back door. There's no crawling through the window. In fact, when Jesus talks about the parable of the, the sheep and the, and the door, he says the thieves try to get in a separate way, but the only way into the sheepfold is through the door. 
Jesus is saying that the doorway into his kingdom is by submitting our lives fully to him. So Jesus is a submissive king. But the second point this morning is that Jesus is a servant king. Look with me in in your Bibles at verse 39. Verse 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked the criminal saying this, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus responded to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. One of the striking realities about Jesus's kingship is that he not only humbles himself. It's not like he, he just becomes a human and then floats around with this glow giving us lots of good advice, right? But Jesus comes as a human and he is willing to associate with those who are seen as the least of these. As I was reading this verse, there was something that struck me. When, when Jesus is talking to this thief next to him on the cross and he says, truly today you'll be with me in paradise, You know, Jesus could have gone to the jail cell that this guy was in and had that conversation with him. Jesus would have known where he was. Jesus could have found this guy. He could have had this conversation. He could have pursued saving him in a different way that was more convenient to him. But what Jesus does is he says, my inroad to a relationship with this man is going to be by hanging on a cross next to him. How radical is that? That Jesus is willing to not just humble himself and become a man, but to humble himself to the form of a servant that considers the needs of others as more important than his. Jesus is not just a king who sits distant, barking orders at us. He's not a guru who gives us philosophical truisms that are like not really helpful at all. Right? He's not, he's not an ideology that's just floating around that we that we believe when it's convenient. The musician, John Mark McMillan, he has a song where he says this. He says, some God who lives in a book doesn't mean anything to me. You see, we don't worship a king who lives in a book. Jesus embodied the form of a servant, a worker, an anonymous nobody Israelite from a backwater town who hung out with thieves and tax collectors. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter two, Verse five, it says this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. You see what's happening here is that in this passage, we are seeing that Jesus was willing to do whatever it took to bring salvation to us, to lay his life down to lay it down, to become a servant, not to hold the things that he valued to be greater than serving us, but to lay those things aside and give his life for us. Our king became a servant so that we could become adopted sons and daughters. And so 
This morning, I want to I end with a story. Um, Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, um, and some of you are like, philosopher? What is he about to talk about? Uh, it's a parable, so it's, it's easy to understand, I promise. But Kierkegaard was a, a Danish philosopher, and he once told this parable about a prince who wanted to marry a maiden suitable to be his queen. So he's this man in, in a high position of esteem, and he, and he wants to find someone who's suitable to be his queen, but he's got pretty high standards. So one day, while the prince is running an errand in the local village for his father, the king, he passed through a poor section of the city. And as he passes through this poor section, his eyes fell upon a beautiful peasant maiden. And he saw her and she caught his attention. And in the days that followed, he often passed by the young lady and he would intentionally run errands in this part of the city so that he could see her. And he didn't know what he was gonna do. All he knew is that he needed to see her. And so he continues to go by and continues to go by. And he eventually fell in love with this woman from a distance. She knew who he was, obviously, because he was the prince, but she didn't really know him. But he had a problem. He fell in love with her. And how would he seek her hand? He could order her to marry him. I mean, that would be convenient. He could use his power and his wealth and his might to order her to marry him. But even a prince wants his bride to willingly marry him, not through coercion. He could put his most splendid uniform on and drive up to her front door in a carriage drawn by six horses. But if he did this, he might not be certain if she loved him or she was simply overwhelmed with all of the splendor. So the prince came up with another solution. Here's what he did. He gave up his kingly robe. He moved into the village. Now he didn't just live there for like a week. It wasn't like an Airbnb situation. He moved into the village for years. He entered not with a crown, but in the garb of a peasant. He lived among the people. He shared their interests and their concerns. He spoke their language. He suffered alongside of them. And in time, the maiden grew to love him for who he was. And she grew to love him because he had first loved her. He pursued her. In the person of Jesus, when we're talking about Jesus being a submissive and a servant king, this is what Christ does for us. This is the kind of royalty that Christ is. He doesn't stand back with his arms crossed on his throne, covered by you know, rubies and jewels and, and servants and all these people and says, go get the people that I want. No, Jesus puts down his robe. He puts down his crown. He doesn't consider his divinity something to be held onto, but willingly lays it aside and becomes the form of a servant. This is how deep and abiding God's love is for us. And I think when we begin to understand this, when we begin to understand that this is the kind of king that Jesus is, then we don't have to be so afraid to be submissive. We don't have to be so afraid to serve and put the needs of others before our own because we are simply mimicking the lead and following the lead of our King Jesus. This is the king that we worship. And so next week, as we step into the season of Advent, I wanna encourage you, as I said at the beginning, to embrace this paradox that we worship a king 
We've seen the end. We've seen an image of the end. But we worship a king who is, one, willing to make us wait for it, and two, willing to come in the form of a baby and a servant and a carpenter from nowhere, all so that we could become sons and daughters of God the Father. Pray all of this in the name of the Son, Father, and the Spirit.